Good morning, guys. Hope you're doing well. If you're new with us, we are uh, in the middle of a series of messages where we're simply just going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're uh, unfamiliar with what the Sermon on the Mount is, that's a, that's a sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples, really the longest teaching uh, that Jesus ever gave to his disciples in an uninterrupted fashion. The closest thing to a sermon like this that we see in the Bible, actually. And, and to set up the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, is going through uh, basically this, this series of what we call Beatitudes, these blessings, where he is basically dictating and shaping uh, what it looks like to be blessed in his kingdom. Because we all walk into this, in this world with this idea of what, blessing, what we think blessing is, and Jesus kind of turns that on its head through the gospel. And so today we're looking uh, really at the linchpin of all of the Beatitudes. There's seven Beatitudes. The one right in the middle is this Beatitude that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So that's kind of the whole idea of what we're going after today. You know, to kind of set us up here a little bit, I'll share a story with you. Not, not many people know this about me, but... Uh, I've been a pre-diabetic for about 15 years, and uh, it basically just means this. I'm just a little sweeter than the rest of y'all, okay? That's what it means, and, uh, you know, I don't have to take medication at this point, um, but I attempt to keep it under control with with diet and and exercise, keyword attempt. Um, When I first discovered this, uh, when I was about 20 years old, uh, I had to do this thing um, when I was meeting with a dietitian called a food journal. Anybody ever done a food journal before? Some of y'all, some of y'all do this every day. Okay, some, that's how that's how great you guys are. But man, that was one of the the lowest points of my life. I got to admit, that was that was tremendously depressing. Um, and the reason was is that I just had to be so honest about what I was eating. It's so honest. And, you know, writing down every, every candy bar, every Mountain Dew, uh, you know, every, uh, every bag of chips, and then having to show up to somebody and tell them why I ate that. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's so hard to do. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you walk into the office with, with, with shame and, and you, you report this to some stranger that you don't even know. And, uh, you know, the initial meeting was rough with the dietitian because I was so addicted to sugar. I was so addicted. And, uh, you know, I, I might as well have been Buddy the Elf. You know, you, 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 you watch the movie Elf, and you're like, there's no way that he actually eats syrup on spaghetti. And then you look at your own food journal, and you're like, I'm not too far off. Um, so what began to happen over the next few months uh, is that my blood glucose level, and I'm going somewhere with this, okay, uh, began to drop within a more normalized range um, where it is today. But something else began to happen. Uh, my palate, what I was able to taste, began to expand. Uh, the range of things that I could taste, you know, I, I could basically, before this, I could only taste like sweet or not sweet, you know, and I just wanted sweet. But what began to happen as I started to cut the sugar out of my diet, or at least the amount of sugar I was taking in, is I began to be able to, to taste other things. Um, and, uh, you know, for the, for the first 20 years of my life, sugar dominated the palate. And, uh, and I found... Uh, that it shrunk the range of what I was able to taste. But, uh, you know, I was able to taste things like vegetables, you know, like, and they were good. It was amazing. And I was able to taste things like salad. But, you know, I, I don't want to confuse you guys. I was always able to taste meat, okay? It was, it was always good. Um, but I could taste things like coffee, you know, and not drown it with tons of sugar. I could actually taste the bean 
You know, carrots didn't have to be smothered in sauce anymore. I could taste more things. And if you would have told me that day in the dietitian's office that, the future, that my future relationship with food would be more rich and diverse than my prior relationship, I would have thought you were crazy. I thought, that, I, thought, I thought that what was beginning to happen was it was gonna take joy and satisfaction out of my life. But actually the exact opposite thing happened. Spiritually speaking, so keep that in mind, spiritually speaking, we're hungry people. Our souls are hungry and they seek to be satisfied. That's why Jesus shares this beatitude with us that really holds all the beatitudes together. And here's how this works. Our spiritual appetites are formed over time, what we hunger for spiritually. And our appetites, they, they shape our desire. And our desires shape our habits or how we pursue that satisfaction. And then ultimately, we do what we want to do. And, you know, collectively, our appetites, you know, that shape our desires, which create habits, are sending us all on a certain trajectory in life, what we're really going after. And that trajectory for you and for I is the pursuit of satisfaction. We're all seeking to be satisfied. Jesus knows that about us. It's how God made us. We were made to be satisfied. The problem is, is that we are satisfied with the wrong things. And we just hit, just like me, you know, being dominated by sugar, we hit at the edges of satisfaction. And, it, and, it, and we're not able to taste the fullness and hunger after the fullness of what God has for us. And so Jesus says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You, we're all hungry and thirsty, but not all of us are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And he says, they shall be satisfied, not that they'll be satisfied immediately, but it will send, this, send them on this trajectory of eventually being satisfied in God and being satisfied over a, a little bit more each day. And so here's our big idea of where we're going today, that perpetual hunger for God is the defining quality of a trajectory toward maturity. Notice that phrase. Perpetual hunger for God is the defining quality. We, you, have, you have qualities in, in your life, that you, kind of things that you, that you note and you think about that you think will, will lead you toward maturity. But is this, is this perpetual hunger and thirst the defining quality that you consider when you think about if you're growing up in Christ or not? Because it is the thing that Jesus says that we ought to be after. What is the one thing that matters most if you wanna grow up in Jesus? Hunger and thirst for righteousness is what Jesus says. And we all wanna be mature and we all wanna be equipped followers of Jesus. We all want to be hungry for the things of God. And the temptation is to believe that our biggest problem is not a menu, is a menu problem, not, a, not an appetite problem. Jesus says it's an appetite problem. We think if, if the menu just didn't have all that unhealthy food on it, I wouldn't eat it. If the world just didn't have all this unrighteousness in it, I would be more righteous. Friends, your lack of spiritual hunger and thirst is not primarily a menu problem, but it's an appetite problem. The most important metric for a trajectory of spiritual maturity is not your personal spiritual scoreboard. You know, we've all got them. The, you know, when, when you'll let yourself feel the joy of the Lord in your life, the things that have to happen, you know, you know those things for you? You know, maybe it's how much you're involved in church or maybe it's how much sin you avoid um, maybe it's how perfect you try to be and how, how you think you're doing on that scale. But the most important metric is discerning what are you really hungry for? Because that's driving everything in your life. 
What is it that you really hunger and thirst and long for that you think will satisfy you? Because that is your spiritual appetite. So let's think about an example just to kind of set us up here, to imitate in the scriptures. I think David is one of these examples for us. David, King David, um, was was the only person in the Bible where the Lord said, this is a guy uh, that's after my own heart. So that's the guy that we ought to like maybe model our lives after, right? Because we're all modeling our lives after someone. Maybe that's a guy we, we should follow. David was also a murderer. He was also an adulterer. He was also a warrior and a passionate lover of God. In fact, toward the, toward the end of his life and his reign as a king on this earth, David wrote Psalm 42. Psalm 42 describes this hunger and thirst. Now, keep in mind, he was already found out to be a murderer. He was already found out to be an adulterer. All of those things already happened in his life when he wrote Psalm 42. And here's what he writes. Here's the song that he writes to the Lord. I'll just read the first two verses. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams. So let's just stop right there. A deer is thirsty. It's running through the fields. It's running through the forest. It is panting. It is desperately looking to be satisfied. David says, that's me. That's me in this world. He says, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David can't wait to show up in God's presence. And we look at David's life and we say, man, if I was him, I would be ashamed. I would live in this place of perpetual kind of shame and this perpetual uh, state of just embarrassment, this perpetual state of hiding because of what my life has become. But David lived in God's light so much that he couldn't long to be in it fully because that's what it looks like when spiritual hunger and thirst are the defining mark of your pursuit of maturity, that your soul pants for God. That Yes, all of those things, all of those disobediences are true of your story, but they do not cancel out the righteousness of God that he has bestowed upon you through his grace. Amen? And so we pant, we long for God as a dirty, rotten, forgiven sinner. His hunger and his thirst was growing. How can this be? What would this look like for us? Friends, I know so many spiritual giants who have spent their lives trying to hide their sin and control uh, their disobedience and, and kind of control their exposure. And I've watched them fail, and I've watched them throw in the towel in one way or another um, because their primary aim was concealing brokenness. That's, that was the defining mark of maturity for them is keeping a tight, close rein on who knew about their brokenness. That is not what God has asked you to do. That is not what God has called you to do. He's called you to be hungry and to be satisfied with him and for his righteousness to define you, even through repentance, because his righteousness defines us as we confess our sin too, right? We're letting his righteousness, we're depending on him alone. Jesus doesn't need you to be Jesus. Jesus needs you to be you with an ever-increasing hunger for him. Then and only then will your life be shaped by pursuit of biblical righteousness. You know, we need to talk about this R word, don't we? Righteousness. It's, it's not a part of the vernacular of the church anymore. Have you noticed that? It, it's not. When is the last time that you heard someone say, I long to be righteous as Jesus is righteous? I bet you can't remember it. Yet, Jesus says this. It's a, it's a singular focus that he has. 
when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll hit it in Matthew 6, he says this, here's the main thing, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like, that's the main thing, seek his righteousness, and then what? All of these things will be added to you. But we live our lives pursuing all of these things, thinking they will lead us to righteousness. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else is thrown in. It's a main thing for us. It is a word that we need to reclaim. I wanna use two concepts that'll help us understand this today. Beholding and behaving, all right? Beholding and behaving. Beholding leads to behaving. That's when you know, that's what you need to know about the relationship between active righteousness and passive righteousness. There are two things that really Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, revealed to the church in his commentary on the book of Galatians. It's an amazing book. If you, I mean, even just the, the preface to the commentary is amazing. If you've never read it before, check it out. You can Google it. It's all over the place. That's the one place, you know, Google will lead you to something good right there, okay? So check that out. Check that out. It's really good. But really what he's, defi- what he's defining is this passive righteousness or beholding, we'll call it today, where, where, we, where we are we're seated in the positionally righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. Then and only then can, we, can it lead to this biblical act of righteousness or behaving that we, that we long for, right? And so um, let's look at this real quick. Beholding, so this is just kind of the setup for the sermon here. This is this idea of passive righteousness. Friends, this isn't dependent upon anything that you do. You know, I know it rubs us the wrong way, but it has to be this way. It has to be this way. We need a righteousness that comes and finds us from the outside because we are not righteous on our own. We need a righteousness that will justify us. As Luther called it, an alien righteousness. It comes from the outside, not like a spaceship or a UFO, but like an alien righteousness that comes from the outside. And it's a gift that we must receive to be made right with God. It is full It is final, it is instantaneous when we receive Jesus. You are as righteous as you could become, yet you are becoming righteous through Christ. It's kind of this mysterious concept, isn't it? That we are positionally righteous before God, but we're also empowered with this hunger and thirst for more righteousness where we are being sanctified. Now, there is a false pursuit of righteousness that the scriptures talk about. If you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Romans chapter 10, just for a moment here. And, and in the scriptures, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were a group of people that pursued this false form of righteousness, and it was false because it didn't depend on Jesus. So here's what Paul says in Romans 10 as he's rebuking, really, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, in, in other words, the real thing, this alien righteousness, and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, biblical righteousness is something that you first have to submit for, submit to rather than strive for. You see the difference? Like if you, if, you, if you don't submit to the gift of righteousness through receiving Christ, you'll never actually be righteous. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how disciplined you are. Doesn't matter how you lead your life. Righteousness is first sub- something that you have to submit to before you can be- behave and, and become actively righteous in Jesus. That's a key thing. He says, he says, he goes on to say this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews desired to be righteous. They just pursued it the wrong way. They got these two backwards. They thought if I can actively be righteous in Jesus' sight, maybe it'll lead to this passive justification, this righteousness where I stand 
right before God. And what I mean by righteousness is this, friends. It's, it's being right with God by doing what God requires. Now, that, that sounds like a tall order, doesn't it? The first thing that God requires is for you to confess your sin and receive Jesus. That's the first thing he calls you to do. That's what it means to submit to the righteousness of Christ. And then and only then can you lead a life that pursues a righteousness that will actually satisfy you, a lifestyle where Jesus, we're pursuing Jesus will satisfy you. Second Corinthians 5 goes on to say this. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, to actually become sin, friends. Not to just kind of hit at the edges of sin, but to become sin. He laid our sin on Jesus, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become, yeah, the righteousness of God, that that might be our story. So when we get these two backwards and we say, I I need to become righteous without submitting to the righteousness of God, what we do is we cut out the sacrifice of Jesus and the righteous standing that we have before God. We are victors when we start the race, friends. That's the truth of the gospel for us. That's why Jesus says we're, we're called to pursue it with everything, to be hungry for it. The passive righteousness means that by faith, and faith alone, you are made right with God. That when someone asks you, you know, are you, are you a Christian, and, they, and they, they start to call out the things in your life that don't look Christian, you say, well, my righteousness depends on Christ. You're kind of missing the point here, right? But, but instead, we hold up, and we, we, we point to the list of things that we, we can do and prove uh, our own righteousness. That's not where we start as Christians. We start with it being finished. That's what Jesus meant on the cross when he said, it is finished. He meant that the pursuit of righteousness apart from Jesus was finished. He finished the work for us. We start as winners in this race. So then, we, then and only then can we talk about this idea of becoming righteous in this world, to being sanctified through Jesus, this active righteousness. And this is the character and behaviors that flow from right standing with God. And this is mostly what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When we, when we divorce the Sermon on the Mount from the rest of the scriptures, it looks kind of like, like a legalistic standing that we kind of have to go toward. But God didn't call us to do that. Jesus is talking about what it means to be actively righteous. Now, this, this sermon is so important um, because this pursuit of righteousness, most of the time we get it backwards, like I said earlier. We, we, we look to what we do to make ourselves righteous. And this is what the Pharisees were doing in Romans chapter 10. The order matters, This hunger and thirst for righteousness always starts on the solid bedrock that you are already righteous in Christ through faith. And then and only then can we pursue this active righteousness. So so we ask now, what am I, let's go back to this hunger and thirst kind of question here. What am I actively hungering and thirsting after? And how is that pursuit shaping my life? Because it is shaping your life in some way. It's a trajectory, not a test for us as Christians because we're already righteous in Christ. And a trajectory tells a story. It does not announce a verdict. If you're a Christian, the verdict is in on your life. You are righteous, but Jesus desires that you would become more and more righteous, and it's actually what your soul longs for. You are righteous, and you are becoming righteous. That's the story of the Christian. We're righteous, yet we are becoming righteous. Righteous. So how can we grow on this active trajectory of righteousness? That's what I want to talk about. I've got three points, just like uh, Jack said. You know, every, every good sermon has three points. I want, I want y'all to get your money's worth today, you know, not, not cut it short with just two or anything like that. 
But what does this look like? So the, what we need to do today is we need to address the appetite, we need to address the menu, and we need to walk together. That's what it looks like to actively pursue righteousness. There's other things in the scriptures that, that talk about that, but those are the three things I want to talk about today. So let, first, let's address this appetite. Our appetites have to be retrained through the word of God. So we're asking this question, what is good food, spiritually speaking? And there's a lot of spiritual junk food in the world, isn't there? There's so much of it. There's a lot of cotton candy, right? And the problem is that when you taste spiritual cotton candy, it's like real cotton candy. It's like a bottomless pit. Have you ever eaten cotton candy before? I mean, it looks so big and full when my kids buy it and we spend $10 on it. And like, it touches their tongue and it is gone because it's only sugar. And the, the more you have, the more you want until you get sick. That Spiritually speaking, there is a lot of that in our world today. You can never get enough and it never leads to satisfaction. And as obvious as this themes, friends, you have to study God's word. There is no way to be spiritually mature without studying God's word. Didn't that sound crazy? And by the way, I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard before today, all right? So if you're taking notes and you're looking for that diamond in the rough, you're not gonna find it. I'm gonna tell you the same old things that you've heard over and over again and plead that the spirit would lead you to obey those things. You have to study God's word. So the first question is this. What is your intake of God's word? How do you take in God's word? Some of us take in God's word. We, we get a cup of coffee in the morning and we consume, we breathe in God's word before we go to work, before we go to school. How do you take in God's word? Other words, take it in, other, other, other folks maybe primarily take it in through other people. Maybe you say, this is how I take in God's word. How is it that you take in God's word? It's a, it's a question to consider. I have to tell you guys a cool story. So I was talking to my dad uh, this last week, and many of you know that my dad is a brand new Christian. It's a really cool story. He'll get baptized later this summer. It'll be amazing. And, uh, and I was like, hey, dad, what are you up to? <laughs> what he said blew my mind. He's like, he's like, hey, Chip's been at my house for five hours teaching me how to study God's word. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. One, that you would study God's word for five hours and you would long for that. Another, and, and on the other side of it, that a member of our church would spend the majority of their day teaching you that every single week. I, he has no idea what, and he'll be in the second service, I'll share this too, but he has no idea what a gift that is. Because he's, he's learning from the source. He's learning how to study God's word from the source. He's not having to sift through spiritual cotton candy, you know, a, a little cotton candy devotional that has one verse and one verse of God's word and a thousand words of somebody else's words, you know. He's not having to sift through endless podcasts of different preachers that are preaching to a specific context, but he's going straight to the source and he's learning how to discern and apply God's word. Because once you've tasted the meat of God's word, you know how to address the menu of this world, don't you? You know how to discern it. That's a word that's come up. That's the third time this morning. You know how to discern what is right and true when you know the source. So many folks in churches today do not know the source. And so the, the plea that I make for you today is this. What is in between you studying God's word? What, what, what is getting in the way of you going to the source? Is it time? Is it the fact that no one's ever discipled you in how to read God's word? For some of you, that's the boldest thing that you can confess today. I have no idea how to study God's word. That's terrifying because you've been in church for a long time, but you know what's more terrifying? 
You live in your whole life never studying God's word. We long for you to know God through his word. I long for you to open your Bible up here in the morning and see if what I'm saying is actually true or not. I don't want you to just believe me because I'm up on this, up on this stage. I want you to know God's word. If, it, it, maybe today you, you, you're, you're gonna tell the person that invited you, hey, I don't know how to study God's word. Can you help me? Maybe you're gonna tell your discipleship group leader, hey, I don't know how to study God's word. If you're new here and you don't know anybody, maybe you're gonna write on a connect card, I don't know how to study God's word. Can you help me? And I would say, yes, we have to figure this out because there's no other way to grow up in Jesus than to study God's word. And friends, this is not, this is not a new to us issue. This is an issue that existed in Paul's day. If you got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians. This is, a, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. They struggled with this too. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now, keep in mind, he is writing to people in the church. He's not writing to people on the street. He's writing to people in the local congregation, the church at Corinth. And he says, I, I can't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In other words, there is a certain maturity, a trajectory that the Lord longs for you to grow up into as you follow Jesus. And you don't have to act like you're further along. You just have to acknowledge where you're really at in the journey. As infants in Christ, he says this, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. In other words, you could not digest the deeper teachings of God's word because you weren't able to receive them. For, for some of us, this is what I'm talking about today. We, the, the boldest thing that we can do is just confess that today, is that I'm, I'm kind of on spiritual cotton candy, and it's, it's endless, and I can't get enough of the podcast. I can't get enough of the, you know, the, the little devotionals. I don't know how to go straight to God's word. That would be such a bold and beautiful thing for you to confess today. Because we've any person who's growing up in Jesus and is moving on to the deeper teachings of God's word, they've been where you're at. Everybody is there at some point. We just, the Lord doesn't want you to stay there, friends. But he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is, je why, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So he's saying that this, these deeper teachings of Christ, the thing that makes you grow up in Jesus is when you obey the teachings, not when you hear them, right? It's not when you just read them, but it's when the fluidity of what you hear leads to the transformation of your life. So the head, the heart, and the hands are all acting in cooperation with one another in an ever-increasing manner, not in a perfect way, because some of us get so hung up when we realize that we are deeply flawed sinners, and we think that that is the defining mark of our maturity, but what the defining mark that sets the trajectory is increasing hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Not changing what righteousness is, but looking at it and trusting Jesus to transform us positionally and leading us to an active pursuit of righteousness in our lives. And that means that we have to be hungry people. Hungry for God, not hungry for Christian celebrities, not hungry for Christian self-helps, but hungry for God himself. My prayer for you this morning when I, when I was driving in was that you would have an encounter with God today, not with me. That you would meet God as you experience the community of God's people, as you hear his word preached, as you sing his word and you pray his word, that you would meet God. Was that your desire today? My prayer for you is that it will be. Second thing is this, we gotta address the menu. I think a lot of times we start here. And this is, this is, this is, 
this means that we have to starve our idols, starve the things that seek to satisfy us that never will be able to. Jesus um, set before us this model of fasting. I find it really interesting, right? And, and, and fasting is an, in, an intentional deprivation that leads to deepening dependence on God. That's kind of what fasting is. Um, before Jesus entered into his three years of public ministry, he went into the desert to starve himself for 40 days, to fast for the purpose of knowing his father more deeply. In the moments of deepest hunger, the enemy came to tempt him. And he tempted him to prove himself by appeasing his hunger through the world's ways. The enemy says something like this, uh, if you are the son of God, you know, command these stones to turn into bread. And Jesus responds with this beautiful word. He says this, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he said this with a hungry, hungry, hungry soul. And he was physically hungry. His stomach was rumbling. In fact, the scripture says he was, he was hungry. It literally says that in Matthew 4. But, but he gets, he gets this, you get this clarity through fasting. Some of you have a practice of fasting, um, maybe some of you have never done that before, but one of the things that fasting affords you is it gives you this, this really uh, beautiful clarity about what matters most in life. And so Jesus responds and he says, you know, man can't live by bread alone, but by every, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Simply put, hunger for God is a good thing because it puts us in the desert with Jesus, Right? That, that's, what, that's what Jesus was after when he said, blessed are you when you're hungry and you're thirsty. A lot of times we don't think we're blessed when we're hungry and we're thirsty, when we're not satisfied, right? It, the, the best part of your day is not like 1130 right before lunch, right? You're hangry, right? Right? We wouldn't say that when we're hungry and we're thirsty that that's the best part of our day. Jesus says there's something that's going right when you're hungry and thirsty for God, when you're pursuing to be satisfied through his word. And it's, and it's because of this reason. It puts us in the desert with Jesus. And where was Jesus more dependent than in the desert or on the cross? Both places he was physically hungry, the scriptures say. Deprived, looking to be satisfied by God. A good place to start for us when we address our idols, the things that need to be starved in our life that will lead us to hunger and thirst for God, is to ask this question. And it's a question that Isaiah invites us to ask. Am I really satisfied with how I'm living life right now? Is it, is it ultimately leading to satisfaction? Is it ultimately leading to contentment? Here's what he says in Isaiah uh, chapter 55. He says, come everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he asks this question. It's a question I invite you to ask. Why do you spend your money or translate it, why do you spend your spiritual currency for that which is not bread, that which is not the word of God, the words of God? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? And he says, listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. That choice is yours. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus says that this hunger which is the main mark of having confidence that we are maturing, I would argue, 
means that we ultimately find ourselves more and more deeply satisfied with Jesus through encountering him in his word, through his spirit among his people. We've, all, we've, we've said that since we started the church, that the three things have to be true in your life if you want to grow up in Jesus. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. You take one of them out, you're not going to mature. You're not going to grow up in Jesus. So the question for you to ask today is, is are those three things kind of in place in my life? Uh, and if they're not, what, what do I need to do to get them in place in my life so that I can grow up in Jesus more? Starving our idols is any time by faith we intentionally place ourselves in deeper dependence on the covering of Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. That, that's what it looks like to starve ourselves, to, to basically say, I'm not going to be satisfied with that. So this can happen in, in, in ways that you don't suspect. We place ourselves in deeper dependence upon Jesus' righteousness when we confess our sin to one another. And that James 5 says that leads to healing in our lives. We, we place ourselves in deeper dependence to Jesus' righteousness when we give money away. We're, we're, we're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to deprive myself of the monetary um, position that I could have and thus place myself under dependence on Jesus more deeply. We do this when we sacrifice for other people. We sacrifice our time, our treasure, our talent. We do this when we obey God's word in costly ways, in ways that only you know that you're disobeying. We are freeing ourselves up to be covered by Jesus. Friends, what needs to happen in your life this week to free yourself up to be covered by Jesus a little more? What needs to happen? What, what, what idol needs to be starved in your heart and your life today? What is it, what is it that is, is competing with real righteousness that comes through Jesus this week in your life? Last thing I want to talk about is this, is that uh, not, only, not only do we kind of address the appetite or address the menu, but we have to walk together. I think, I think one of the things that I've, I haven't heard talked about in a long time uh, in, in church circles is this, is this idea of imitation. What does it look like to hunger together in community and thus recover the discipline of imitation in the church? So how do we get further down the tracks on this desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness? We do it together because hunger in community begets hunger in community. Hungry people produce hungry people. Philippians 3 says this. And don't... don't um, don't get, don't get the order wrong as I'm talking about this because um, Jesus saves us right where we are. He positionally makes us righteous before God, but it leads to this growing hunger and thirst for righteousness. So keep that in mind as we look at this. Philippians 3, 17 says this, brothers, sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's a command. That's a command, friends, to keep people in your life that are further along than you on the journey. Some of us just keep people around us that are less mature than us because it makes us feel better about ourselves. What's it look like to, to, to share life and to, to submit to others that are, they just walk with Jesus longer and their lives are worthy of imitation? Do you, friends, do you have those people in your life? Back in the old days in, in, uh, in um, when I was a youth pastor, we used to say, do you have a Paul and a Timothy in your life, right? Do you have somebody that's pouring into you and you have somebody that you're pouring into? He says, join in imitating me and walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom in the church, 
I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears in my eyes, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their appetite. They glory in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things. Do you have people in your life that help you set your gaze on heavenly things? He says, our citizenship's in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables us, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So friends, when you only talk about passive righteousness, it does not lead to your transformation. When you just talk about what Jesus has done, but you never seek to obey him, you're not walking in Christ the way he intended for you to. In the same way is, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when you attempt to obey Jesus without understanding that you are positionally righteous before him, it doesn't lead to transformation either. It leads to legalism. What the Lord has for us is a spirit-empowered act of righteousness that flows from the life of Jesus. Many Christians have lost this desire for healthy imitation of other believers, and I get it. I'm suspicious of imitating anyone too, but it's because I know what's in the heart of man. But the good news is Jesus does too. And he says we should still seek to be like more mature people in our lives. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we're going about it the wrong way. Maybe we're seeking uh, maturity in the wrong ways. Maybe Paul had in mind also imitating a model of repentance that exists in other believers that are more mature than us. Maybe it's imitating a confession of sin, imitating walking in vulnerability like other brothers and sisters in Christ too. What about your view of community and fellowship with others is broken? Maybe you're in here today and you're like, I don't even need other people if you just said that. You looked at your life and you said, I just kind of walk alone with Jesus. That's broken, friend. That's broken. Jesus wants to meet you and make you whole and push you Iron, sharpening iron as you follow Jesus. Let's, um, I want to I I close with a, a quote from a pro wrestler, something I haven't done much in my life. But uh, anyway, this is from this guy, a guy named uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, right? This guy uh, is kind of a serial entrepreneur, um, started lots of companies and things like that, um, acting, all that kind of stuff. But he, he, there's this quote that I love by him because it, you know, in Jesus, it's who I want to become. It's who I want to become. I don't know if he's in Jesus or not, but I'm, I'm reading it that way. He says this. He says, hey, I'll never be full. I'll always be hungry. Obviously, I'm not talking about food. He said, growing up, I had nothing for such a long time. So maybe he's pursuing it from a materialistic standpoint. And he says, he said this, someone told me a long time ago, and I've never forgotten it, once you've ever been hungry, like really, really hungry, then you'll never, ever be full. That's my prayer for us, friends, is that we would learn how to be really hungry for God. And that would change everything about who we're becoming. Let's pray together. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.